Uh, but today we're just going to take a little break from that and go to Psalm 114. Psalm 114. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, Psalms, you could basically crack open your Bible to the middle. And the big numbers, 114, that's where we'll be. We're going to consider God the Waymaker. God the Waymaker. As best as I can remember, in all of grade school and middle school, I read one chapter book from cover to cover. And that was a chapter book about Harriet Tubman. I was just fascinated by her courage, her determination to rescue fellow slaves. Harriet Tubman, if you don't know about her, she lived from 1822 to 1913. And she was really a remarkable woman. She was born into slavery in Maryland. And she had a heart for God and a heart for justice and freedom as a young girl. Even at one point when I think she was around 12 or 13, she saw the slave master about to hit another slave with a heavy object. And she stepped in between the master and that other slave. And she took a head injury that affected her for the rest of her life, having on and off migraines and headaches. Well, she escaped slavery from Maryland um, as an adult. And instead of staying in the safe haven of the Northeast or Canada... She decided, I'm going to go back to Maryland to set free my friends and family. And over her lifetime, she went back into slave territory 13 times and rescued around 70 friends and family. And at one point, I think she's boasting to Frederick Douglass, and she says, check this out. I never lost one of them. So she goes back, and she's a conductor On the Underground Railroad, this is a system of houses and people who are dedicated to getting slaves um, out of the system into safety. Well, later in life, uh, Harriet acquired some land. Oh, by the way, this you could find this uh, statue. This is on the south end of Boston. It's a beautiful statue. And she's carrying, one of her nicknames was Moses. So you see her, she's over here, she's carrying a Bible uh, and she's confidently leading uh, these people to freedom. And you can see, I love, I love the peace and the calm that you see on all of her friends and family's faces because they trust in her. So you could, you could find that in the South End. Uh, but later, later in life, uh, she acquired some land. She acquired a seven-acre seven farm in 1859 in Auburn, New York. And many of the friends and family she led out of captivity, she invited them to live with her, including her parents. She took her uh, parents and put them in safety in Canada. And then once she was more established, she invited them to live with her. More on that in a bit. Well, in Psalm 114, this song is celebrating the powerful presence of God in the Exodus. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Exodus is when God set his people free from slavery. God's people, Israel, were in slavery in the world power of that day, Egypt, for about 400 years. And they were beaten mercilessly. And finally, God had had enough. And he says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, bring you into the promised land so that you could be with me. And this psalm is celebrating that. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 are called the Hallel Psalms. Even if you don't know Hebrew, you probably know what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord. Almost every psalm in 113 through 118 begins or ends with praise the Lord. 
And song after song after song is remembering what God has done in the past to praise him in the present. So this is praising God for the exodus. Today, we're faced with our own obstacles. Harriet Tubman, Moses, God's people have been faced with all sorts of obstacles. Maybe you feel like there's an obstacle between you and community because there's a deep, dark secret that you've never confessed. Maybe you feel like there's an obstacle between you and God because of an addiction or because you really don't know the way. I've heard from a couple of you in your story of coming to God, you wanted to know God, but you just didn't know how. There's obstacles to knowing him. Maybe it's fatigue or suffering. You feel so weighed down with suffering that you can't make a way to God. Maybe it's a calling. God's called you to a job or a vocation to start something or to continue a work. And you feel like there's obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Well, this morning, the good news from Psalm 114 is God's power delivers his people into his presence. This is good news because the psalm God's power to overcome our obstacles and not our own. So let's read from Psalm 114. Let's listen to God's word and we'll jump right in. Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people who spoke a foreign language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, see, that you fled? Jordan, that you turned back? Mountains, that you skipped like rams, hills like lambs. Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the flint into a spring. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we're going to geek out a little bit. So for, for you poetry fans, as you look at this poem, eight verses, there's four couplets. Now, couplets are two lines that talk about one theme, a common theme here. And each of these couplets has a theme. So verses one and two is the way out of Egypt. Verses three and four are the obstacles that were in the way. The obstacles are moved. The third couplet is the obstacles mocked. And finally, the way maker in verses seven and eight. So let's look at this first couplet in chapter uh, verses one and two. Like I said earlier, almost every single verse in the praise Psalms begins with hallelujah, praise the Lord. But Psalm 114 breaks the pattern and it just jumps right into the action. When Israel went out of Egypt, it begins mid motion. Remember, God brought Israel out of slavery from Pharaoh, an evil ruler in Egypt. Egypt wasn't their home, even though they were for about 400 years. They were slaves. And the, and the verse says they were surrounded by people who spoke a strange language or a foreign language. Uh, if you've ever spent time in a foreign country, you know how exhausting it is to be surrounded by all this chatter and talk that you can't understand at all. You're constantly reminded that you're not at home. Then you sit down at lunch and you have a plate of food that's foreign to you. But even if you go to a culture like our Mexico team, like even some of those people who don't speak a lick of Spanish, they go into Mexico, they're greeted by smiling faces, they're playing soccer with kids, they're having delicious tacos, like it's a good time, right? 
And then you come home to the comfort of your own bed and to go to five guys or whatever. But it was very different for Israel and Egypt. They're surrounded by this language they couldn't understand. But instead of smiling faces and plates of tasty food, they were greeted with whips on their back, smacks on their cheeks. This was similar to maybe the first African slaves that came to our shores. They heard a language they didn't understand. And for no good reason, they were beat and given tiny rations. So year after year, decade after decade, century after century, this happens. And God's people are saying, God, don't you see us? Don't you love us? Where are you? Why haven't you spoken to us? And God sees their pain. He hears their groans and he moves towards them. Verse 2 shows us the purpose of the exodus. It says that Judah became his sanctuary. That's another fill-in word for God's people. His people became his sanctuary, and Israel became his dominion. God brought Israel out of Egypt, and the main reason was he wanted to be with his people as a dominion and a sanctuary. Dominion is ruling language. God wanted to take his people out of out from under an evil ruler and place them in his safe, strong, caring rule as a father, just as he intended his relationship with his people to be. And it also says he wanted to dwell with his people as a sanctuary. God's people, he doesn't just love you, he likes you. He wants to be with you. When you first trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit was pleased to dwell in you. This purpose holds true for Exodus and for us, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus and turned from our old way of life. God saved you because he loves and likes you and wants to rule over you, not to abuse you, but to care for you and to dwell with you forever. But in order for Israel to get out of Egypt to the promised land, to experience this kind king and his sweet presence. They had many obstacles on the way. So let's turn to verses three and four. This is couplet number two. And you see here, the psalmist is talking about the most immovable obstacles on the way home. He says the sea, the Jordan, that's a huge river. The mountains, the hills. So he's looking down the road towards freedom, away from slavery. And he's saying, all these things are in the way. He's not even talking about the Egyptians, their chariots, Pharaoh. He's saying, no, 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 no. The real obstacles is this terrain that we have to go through. The most immovable things. He first says, the sea and the Jordan. So the first main obstacle Israel faced was they were running from Pharaoh's armies behind them. They were on foot, hundreds of thousands of Israelites, and behind them on horseback and chariots is an armor with their spears trying to bring them back to Egypt. And if they can't bring them back alive, they'll bring them back dead. And in front of them is the Red Sea. That is the first obstacle. And God parted the sea and opened a way for them. And when Pharaoh and his armies came in on that dry land, God swallowed them up in the water. So that was their first obstacle. Then he talks about the Jordan. The Jordan was this huge river that they couldn't pass on by themselves to make it finally out of the desert into this lush, rich place flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. 
This is their final obstacle that they had to face. And God led them through that safely. So what is the psalmist saying here? He's saying the first obstacle and the last obstacle are no match for God. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The obstacle of your sins was removed so that God would bring you into his family. And finally, the obstacle of death. For those of us who are facing death and it's approaching, he will bring you through that Jordan into his presence forever. So we move to the water, to the dry land, and he says in verse 4, the mountains skipped around like rams and the hills like lambs. He's imagining little sheep, little rams, jumping around, frolicking on the field, and he's saying, mountains, you look like baby sheep. God shook the earth to save his people. And he didn't just do it thousands of years ago for uh, Israel. He did it for us through Jesus. Jesus went through the waters of baptism. He leads us through the waters of baptism into his father's presence. And he doesn't just open up a way for us to the promised land and the new heavens and the new earth, which is coming, but he opens up the way to the Father's good pleasure. Remember when Jesus went down into the water and then came up, a loud voice from heaven said, that's my boy, that's my son. He makes me so happy. And that's what God the Father says over you if you're in him and trusting in him. Jesus removed the ultimate obstacles for us. There's four Gospels, and there's only one that records that there was earthquakes, both at the crucifixion and at the resurrection of Jesus, and that's Matthew's Gospel. I think it's because he's showing that God is making a new people through Jesus. Not Israel who disobeyed and didn't trust God, but through this Jesus who represents his people, who always obeys, always loves God and neighbor perfectly, and through him, he's making a new people and this is, it says in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one that when Jesus finally gave up his last breath on the cross, the rocks shook. There was a massive earthquake. And then it says in Matthew 28, verse 2, that when he resurrected, when he put death to death, there was another earthquake. Jesus removed the obstacle of sin, even that sin that you are terrified about confessing to a trusted friend. He removed that obstacle on the cross to bring you into God's presence. And on the third day, he removed the obstacle of death so that we could live forever with him. Now, when the poet wrote this song, it's like many musical artists, like they have this inspiration, but it's not when they're in the storm. They're kind of like looking back to the trial they had in their writing this beautiful song that they had this experience with God, he sees with the eyes of faith. But what would it be like to trust God in the midst of the storm? What would it be like to be an Israelite with the army behind you, ocean in front of you, and instead of screaming and cursing God's name, trusting God and saying, that's nothing for you, God, right now. Whatever obstacle you're facing, if it's just daunting and you can't move it in the moment, not just looking back, That's a great reason for praise. But right now, saying, God, that's nothing for you. That sin I committed last night. 
this job that you've called, called me to that I have problem after problem with. This is nothing for you. And here we see the poet sees with faith. It's amazing. If you read through Exodus, the ones who are shaking and kind of jumping around like scared little lambs are God's people. But he's honoring God's people. And he's saying, no, it's the mountains and the sea that shakes. So we see these obstacles are moved. And then in verses 5 and 6, we see the obstacles are mocked. Now, I know for you kids in here, I remember when I was a kid playing basketball, like coaches and parents told you not to trash talk and not to mock and not to boast. But kids, you are made to boast. You are made to boast. Before you get too excited, start pounding your chest, doing the LeBron thing, saying I'm the best. You are made to boast in God. And that's what the poet is doing here. He starts taunting God's enemies and obstacles. If you think about it, the image that we have here of the sea running away, the Jordan turning back, the mountains skipping like rams and hills like lambs is of a fullback. A beastly fullback, and he's just making space for his running back. He's making that lane, that wide open gap, so his running back could run through. But the picture, the picture I have of the running back is Napoleon Dynamite. If you've ever seen Napoleon Dynamite, he's like 110 pounds soaking wet, and he's holding the ball. He has his curly hair with his, you know, uh, Velcro shoes, and he's terrified of being hit, and he's just walking through. And God's that monster. He's Dwayne the Rock Johnson, just putting body blows on the defenders and opening that wide open lane. That's what God did for his people in the Exodus. That's what God has done for us through the death and resurrection of his son. These obstacles that were insurmountable for us, little weak me, Jesus, the Son of God, came on my team took on flesh, came on your team, was born through a virgin, put on the team jersey for us, and opened wide the lane so that we could walk into God's presence. There's one of my favorite church fathers, and church fathers are just early Christians who taught and spoke on theology and preachers, uh, was this guy named Athanasius of Alexandria. And Athanasius had a heart for Jesus. He had a heart for the lost. And so he wrote these books proving to people who were either too educated for Jesus or too um, skeptical or they had too many like false idols. People who were far away from Jesus. He wrote books to prove to them that Jesus is the real deal. And on his book on the incarnation, which is a great Christmas read, it's 100 pages. Go get it on Amazon or wherever you get books. On the incarnation, Athanasius is proving to unbelievers that the resurrection is real, that Jesus actually did put death to death. And this is what he says. A very strong proof of this destruction of death and its conquest by the cross is supplied by a fact, namely this. All the disciples of Christ despise death. They take the offense against it, off, offensive against it, and instead of fearing it by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, trample on it as something dead. That's amazing. He's saying Christians, people who follow Jesus, men, women, children, rich, poor, they trample on death like it's dead. Those who used to be taken in by it, meaning they were terrified of death, now they mock it now as something, as a dead thing robbed of all its strength. 
And Athanasius is writing this on the tail end of a lot of persecution of Christians, people being fed to lions in Colosseums, burned as torches at Nero's parties. He was writing in the 300s after some of that. And he's saying, all those people, those boys and girls who are not afraid of death, the only possible reason that they couldn't be afraid of death is because they knew it was conquered by Jesus who rose from the grave and presented his living body to hundreds. And so we as a church, death is the last enemy. We shouldn't make light of it. And it's sorrowful when loved ones in Christ die. But we can still have the last word of mocking death and saying with Paul, saying with Christians all over the globe, oh, death, where is your sting? If you've listened carefully in this psalm, Uh, Have you noticed that we've been assuming that God has done all of this throughout the whole psalm? He hasn't been named. There's this pronoun, third masculine singular, singular, his, a couple times, but he hasn't been made explicit until the end. And this is some of the beauty of this poem. Now, at the end of the poem, we see God and he's named and his presence is glorified and praised. This is where we get to the praise. So we see the way maker, God himself, in verses 7 and 8. 7 is kind of like the crescendo in musical terms of the symphony, this shorter symphony. It's the theme verse. And it says this, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Now, when people, uh, especially uh, Jewish or Hebrew poets, repeat something, that's how they often draw attention to something. So here, they're saying, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. So God's powerful presence is the big idea of this passage. God's presence is the only thing that can make sense of the Exodus. It's God's presence that's opened the way into the promised land, and it's God's presence that made all the obstacles tremble. Now, if you think about how impossible the Exodus is, was. It says in Exodus 12, 37 and 38 that the number of people that God delivered out of Egypt was about 600,000 men plus women and children. So you could make the estimates there. Some people who are reasonable people estimate that there's about 2 million Israelites who got taken out of Egypt. Um, whether you think it's Millions or hundreds of thousands. That is a huge number of people. I have a hard time of taking care of three kids. But God took hundreds and thousands of kids, maybe two million people, some who were crippled or lame and needed to be carried out of Egypt, the world's superpower, who had the strongest army in that day. God's presence is the only conceivable explanation for the exodus. He followed them by night in this huge billowing uh, fire, and he led them. He he led them by day in this huge um, cloud. He led before them, and when the armies were coming to attack, when the Red Sea was in front of them, Exodus tells us that God went to the rear guard. I don't even know what that would look like, but it was scary enough to fend off Pharaoh and his army, that God went to the rear guard and held them off while he opened up the waters. God's presence was with them in the wilderness. Despite their disbelief, he never gave up on them. He led them to water. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them meat from heaven. 
God was with them when he led them into the promised land and they faced giants. Again, think about Napoleon Dynamite, this time facing off against the rock. They're facing against Goliath and his family members and men like that. God said, I will fight for you myself. But all of this salvation, all of this deliverance was only partial. We see over and over again in the history of Israel, even though they were delivered from an outside oppressor, they all had many oppressors in their own hearts. And they treated each other like Pharaoh treated them. They didn't love their neighbors as themselves. They took money, didn't give it back. The rich treated the poor harshly. People didn't worship God or pray from the heart. But in Jesus, we have full and final freedom for all that oppresses us outside of us and inside of us. Jesus not only delivers us from evil dictators, kings, rulers, bosses, but he delivers us from our own sin, our own rebellion towards him by taking that punishment on the cross and giving us new hearts that beat with love for him and others. Jesus is God's presence with us. We sing it every Christmas. We remind ourselves that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And on our homeward journey through the wilderness, because we're reliving that story like Israel did, we're going through the wilderness with the obstacles that face us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and he'll bring us safely to the promised land. Now, this psalm ends on a quiet note. It's like we hit the crescendo, and it ends with some strings, and softly we fade out. It says, this is the God who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. This is referring to when God provided water in the wilderness to his people. After the clash of percussion and the blowing of the horns, finally we have the string section. And God says, he removed all the obstacles. Now you just get to be with your father in his sanctuary. And he's going to feed you and he's going to tend to you. Now, how do we live in light of this praise psalm? How does it change us? Well, first, all we have to do, all Israel had to do, when there's obstacles in front of us, enemies behind us, was be quiet and watch God do his thing. Let's pull those verses up here. When the people are losing their minds, and rightly so, I mean, we probably would have too, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Jesus took care of their enemies. Jesus will take care of our enemies, our sin, maybe people who oppress or abuse us, and ultimately death. Sometimes when we see an obstacle in the way, we put our football helmets in, mouth guard, we just run straight at that thing and crack it as hard as we can. We just end up a crumple on on the ground. Instead of that, whatever your obstacle is this week, whatever your, your daydreams keep going to, your anxieties, your fears, instead of charging it head on first, ask your father to help. Ask your father to make a way. Ask him to help you. He would love to do that. How do we live in light of this passage? We be quiet and receive the salvation of God. So if you're not trusting in Jesus yet, if you feel the fear of death weighing on you like I did before I trusted in him, 
If you feel the, the gnawing guilt of sin, what you do behind closed doors like I did before I came to Christ, all you have to do is put your hands out, be quiet, and receive his love for you in Christ. Just receive him and turn away from your old way of living and he will bring you into his family. Well, we're quiet and we're saved, but we're also resting like free people. Uh, There's two places in the Old Testament that lay out the Ten Commandments, the ten big ones. In Exodus, there's the Sabbath commandment, so rest one day a week because God did the same thing in creation. That's the reason we're given. If you go to Deuteronomy 5, chapter 5, verse 15, it has the same commandment, rest one day a week, give your animals rest, give your workers rest. The reason? Because you used to be slaves, but now you're free. Let's hear this. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath this day. So we rest one day a week. We get away on family vacations. We close our laptops at six to have dinner with our friends or family. We don't scroll our phones at night. I'm saying don't, but I do all these things sometimes. So it's like I'm preaching to myself. We don't scroll our phones. Don't look at emails at 9 a.m. and get that blue light all up in our face so we can't sleep. We don't do those things. We rest because we're not a slave to other people's opinion. We're not a slave to our guilt or our sin. We're not a slave to the dollar bill. You have been set free in Christ. So how do we live in light of this passage? It starts with, Sabbathing, taking one day a week to rest. I remember um, in one of the most hectic periods of my life, I was going to school, had an internship, uh, had a part-time job. And I remember at that part-time job, I worked at a grocery store and they had all this delicious food around me. I kid you not though, I think my average consumption of food was about three minutes. So at a 30-minute break, I had to get groceries so that I wouldn't do it after, so I'd have time for homework, and I would scarf down like a burrito, avocado, a bag of like salt and vinegar chips in three minutes. I'd feel awful. <laughs> I was a slave to the clock. I was always moving. And it's been sweet moving out here, taking a meal in 30 minutes, maybe an hour. I aspire to be European and like eat for three hours. <laughs> Don's, Don's told me about that. But it's like, I'm free. I'm not a slave to the clock anymore. You're not a slave to the clock anymore if you're in Christ. You're not a slave to your sin. You're not a slave to what other people think about you or the boxes they put you in. You are a free son or daughter in Christ. So take rest. Lay down your work. Now, in this home that Harriet Tubman had, uh, which she bought later in life, You could go on National Park Services and learn about the Harriet Tubman home. And this is what it says about her there. Harriet Tubman continued her devotion to supporting others by opening her home and her seven-acre farm. She purchased in 1859 in Auburn, New York to let people stay, specifically people who had suffered the most under slavery and war. Harriet Tubman welcomed many people into her home, including orphans, people who were disabled, and anyone who was too old to work and support themselves. Harriet Tubman continued to operate the farm to feed the growing number of people for whom she cared. Harriet Tubman delivered people from slavery so that she could enjoy life with them. 
She took in the hurting, the least, the lost, those who couldn't fend for themselves, orphans, the elderly, widows, to be with her. And if you are trusting in Jesus, your Father in heaven has liberated you from slavery so that he can invite you into his house. And no matter whatever obstacles you face, your good shepherd will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death and you, brother or sister, shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.